0: On today's episode of The Data Show, I speak with Rajat Monga. He's a director of engineering at Google. But most importantly, he's the co-creator of TensorFlow and manages the TensorFlow engineering team. We talk about how TensorFlow evolved and uh, also, interestingly, how TensorFlow is so widely used now across many, many different products at Google. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with uh, Rajat Monga, who, for uh, those of you listening, is the Engineering Director for TensorFlow at Google. Welcome to the Data Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: So let's start off with your background, which is uh, quite interesting. You've done just about uh, everything and uh, and have had experiences in many domains. Uh, so you did a little bit of IT consulting you even worked as a kind of financial modeling in Morgan Stanley <laughs> ended up so the last two things actually seemed related to what you're doing now which is a search at eBay and then you were doing something around the area of audio in your most recent company so uh to what extent do your previous uh, work experience inform what you do now at Google and and particularly now that you're working in a hot space like deep learning.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I've uh, gone around building all kinds of software really across the board. You know, I started out my background's actually double e, but I've always enjoyed building software. And when I went into ID consulting, I was still building software in some form or the other. And over time I, you know, tried lots of different startups in different areas. But the the core for me was always I was learning and building new kinds of systems, usually large scale distributed stuff that had to perform really, really well and scale up nicely. Same with, you know, at places like eBay and Google. In fact, before this team at Google, I was doing ads and ad serving, you know, again, where uh, the number of queries that we have every day is is pretty enormous. Now, there were some other interesting areas, which, you know, like some of the search stuff and like you mentioned, audio in the previous company, at the previous company, I Actually, we were dealing with all kinds of data text audio video images so so we had some experience with all of those it, it was although you know as i started with this team and what my background has helped is really just being a, a systems generalist and somebody who understands systems well and able to build new things that that's sort of how i you know got involved of course now i've been picking up deep learning and doing a bunch of things in that area as well
0: what about uh, rajat just uh, your experience managing engineering teams and engineering projects? How, how has that helped you in your current role?
1: Yeah, so I, I've uh, done a mix of individual contributor roles and management for a while now. I managed briefly at eBay, and then at my previous startup, I actually uh, built that engineering team from scratch. So, you know, basically building the initial product and stuff, and then was driving a lot of their research ideas there. And all of that has been useful. In this team as well, you know, when this team started out, uh, five years ago, I guess, we were just a few of us, and we all worked as engineers. There was no manager. There, there was a manager, but yeah, we we were really driving things. And uh, But over time, there is a need as the team grows to have some organization to help drive towards a common purpose and stuff, and I've been happy to take on that role, given my background,
0: and um, it's been great. So you joined Google, I would imagine, <laughs> not to work on deep learning, right? So how did you end up in deep learning? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's an interesting story. So I joined Google uh to, to build servers and ads uh and spend about two years there. So I was, you know, managing a large team at that point and doing some very interesting things. It's you know, ads has been around for a long time, but given how things are at Google, you keep rewriting and rebuilding things just because the scale changes every few years. So it was interesting. But but I'd done a lot of that for a long time and I was itching to try something new. And so it, it, you know, around that time, Andrew Ng had come over and he had met Jeff Dean and they were discussing maybe doing something in this area. How can we, you know, try deep learning? Deep learning seems promising. Can we scale that up? Will it work at Google scale? What what will that mean and stuff? So as part of that, just whole uh, oh, wait, 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 effort, Roja, what, what year was this? This was 2011, okay. the beginning of 2011, end of 2010, basically.
0: And so at that point, uh, uh, 2011, not much happening at Google as far as deep learning.
1: No, no. There were like some pockets, there were few people here and there who had interest. So we have Sammy Benji on our team who's been in this, working in this area for a long time. He's been at Google for a while as well. He had been, you know, him and a few others here and there were doing things, but largely there wasn't a huge thing happening, partly because the data sets or the size of the data that we had, it's hard to scale things up for deep learning for that. I mean, that's how this team started. But also deep learning hadn't shown great results everywhere still. It was still pretty early for deep learning at that time. It was only in the, like the couple of years before that that some very specific areas were starting to see early results.
0: So then uh, I think for me, I started noticing Google and deep learning in 2012, particularly around a NIPS paper, which I think you're, you're one <coughs> of the co-authors on large-scale distributed deep networks. That's right. Um, so was that at that point, was that a research project or was it starting to go into production?
1: So in 2011, like I said, that this team started and we started building this first generation of software, what we call disbelief and what we published in that paper. Early on, we were Actually, from day one, we were working closely with a couple of teams. The speech team was one of the ones we worked the closest with. And then a couple of more areas that we worked with, you know, on the image side, we were doing our own research as well. So it was a mix of research and some production elements there. By the time we published the paper, we had maybe one or teams we were close to doing some production stuff with a number of research things as well.
0: So put that in historical context. So when that paper came out, uh Obviously, at that point, you guys were doing things, but uh, were other companies and other groups also starting to uh make noise on around deep learning
1: so by twenty twelve it was still mostly academia. There were very few companies which were uh starting to do anything there was speech was interestingly one of the early areas where people. You know, started to take notice. Mostly driven by some papers from Jeffrey Hinton's lab, where him and, yeah, yeah, and Alex. Right? No, so so. Ilya and Alex actually came into the uh, a year later doing vision stuff. Okay. And at that time, for speech, uh, there's a person, Nafthi Chakli, who's now on our team. In fact, and these guys did. You know, he actually was an intern at Google for a while. So, so in speech, they published some research which showed that this was better than all the other approaches by quite a bit mar- of margin. And that's probably the first thing that kicked off in, in a number of other companies as well. And in
0: 2013, actually, uh, you're also a co-author of a paper on, on rectified linear units for speech processing. So at that point, I think at some point, actually... I. I realized that uh, almost all the speech recognition systems we were using were starting to use deep learning, right? So what year was that? did that transition really take hold? So I think
1: between 2012 and 2013 is the time when things started getting into production with real models. I think Google was probably the first one that actually pushed deep learning into production for speech. So the good thing at Google has been We've been great about not just doing research, but taking that and really making it deployable and included in production systems, partly because our research is embedded with the production teams themselves.
0: You know, this is actually quite interesting because uh, for people in the outside world, they always think, I think that uh, deep learning and images and vision was where it really started to uh, take hold and gain uh, the attention of companies so what you're saying is it's really speech
1: that was i think one of the first ones that really uh, made a difference so yeah vision did come out just a little bit later 2012 was the, the year that deep learning for vision really became popular and that was from the paper by again jeffrey Hinton, alex Krizhevsky and Ilya Sutskever and uh You know, where they basically were able to take this ImageNet benchmark, which is this 1 million images, 1,000 classes, and make a huge progress versus all the other methods that have been done so far. Like before that, I think the best results uh, on the top five metric that they have, which is, is the prediction, is the right prediction among the... uh, is the right class among the top five predictions in that metric i think went from like 50 something percent to 75 percent or something so so like a 15 20 percent so improvement it
0: was, there it was a shock to the research community
1: exactly a- and every other approach every other algorithm was like a big 10 15 percent behind this
0: so uh, at that point though uh... Jeff, Hinton, Alex, and Ilya were just doing it on their own, programming, deep learning on their own with GPUs, right?
1: That's correct. Basically, on one machine, uh, Alex is great about, he wrote his own custom CUDA kernels. He really went down and optimized things. Wow. And it was a combination of, yeah, yeah, it was a combination of research and infrastructure again, but in this case, one person who really drove that infrastructure in terms of speeding things up, and that really, really helped.
0: And so then at some point, you uh, Google actually acquired their company.
1: That's correct. And I. they I came over. They that's came right. Over.
0: So what is the state now, um, Rajad, in terms of uh, what can be done on one machine and what uh, needs a scale-out architecture? So,
1: you know, with machines becoming more powerful and things like GPUs, you could put four or eight GPUs in a machine and definitely get a fair bit of stuff done. At the same time, you know, if you have really large data sets or if you want to do really large models, both of which are very true at places like Google, we're probably at the forefront of this. Having access to many more machines and, uh, you know, how you connect them and all the nice software to run those things on definitely helps. A lot of our training does happen on, you know, tens to hundreds of machines or cores or GPUs,
0: depending on what's needed. But the actual model fits in one machine.
1: Mostly, yes. Most models do fit on one machine for the eventual influence.
0: And so so you guys were starting to use deep learning across many more product groups. I imagine in the beginning, everyone was kind of implementing it on their own. And then at some point, kind of the precursor to TensorFlow came about. Is this the right sequence of events?
1: Actually, it turns out that there's... You know, the popularity also came from having that library at Google. So the precursor to TensorFlow, which was disbelief, uh, in 2012, you know, we had we were just had a, a few users of it outside our team in speech. They were, you know, given where we were and that we were in some sense the drivers of deep learning within Google, you know, most people who got onto deep learning were used disbelief or started with that as the platform. There were very few other libraries that came about.
0: But this belief, the way you described it, came out of a research project, so it wasn't really probably engineered and architected for developers.
1: So it was, uh, it's interesting. Well, everybody who was building this was an engineer, starting from Jeff Dean, of course, who has built many kinds of systems at Google, right? And so it was something that could be deployed. Yes, there were things that could be done better, sure. But at the same time, in some ways, it was always built as something that could be deployed in production.
0: And something that was accessible to regular data scientists and developers?
1: So it was, I think that's you know sort of started to, in the last few years, we started to hit issues where it was okay for deployment in production in some ways because you know it was all C++ and then over time we added python support and python uh, layers that made it easier and easier to use and that made it more accessible to people like data scientists and developers and stuff but but there's definitely friction there it it hadn't been designed from the ground up for all of these things you know it would do some things okay other things not so well etc
0: so when did the the whole tensorflow project begin
1: so in 2014, early that year, we started thinking, we are seeing a lot of issues. Now we have a few choices. We could you know, take large parts of it and rewrite those. And we did that for one or two areas. And that did help, right? That improved and pushed what we could do with disbelief. But the other choice was, how about we just really design from scratch and rebuild this completely? And at Google, there's You know, there are a lot of projects that do that. Interestingly, even the large areas like ads and search, every few years you see huge chunks of code being thrown out and really, really really rewritten. And that is amazing properties. There's definitely a risk because you are maybe slowing down development of the existing thing. And for a while, you'll probably not be not going to make as much progress. But if you do it well, then it has the potential to, you know, really push things forward and hopefully, you know, run for the next few years. And so that at some point, In mid 2014, we decided let's really go and build a new thing, and that that was TensorFlow. Uh, It was really Jeff Dean's idea. He said, "Okay, here's." He had some proposals. Of course, a lot of people uh, contributed and and really designed and built it. But
0: yeah. So, what's the uh, kind of the uh, layman's explanation of how does TensorFlow differ from disbelief?
1: So, from our goals perspective, a few things that changed. One was. The design, in terms of its uh, how the layman, how the end users define their models. The previous approach was. Very layer by layer, etc., which was okay for certain kinds of models, but didn't have the flexibility for research. And so this gave that extra flexibility. Uh, the the next thing was supporting different kinds of platforms. When we built disbelief, there were no GPUs around, or nobody was using GPUs for deep learning. So we scaled to thousands of machines using CPUs. Now we wanted to support things like GPUs, and at some point, uh, you know, other hardware efforts. That so wait bring, a minute!
0: Wait a minute! So when you built disbelief. I thought the academic researchers were just doing GPUs in one box.
1: So interestingly, the the first time GPUs really became popular was after the ImageNet thing that Alex and Elia did for Jeffrey. Right. That was in 2012. We started in early 2011. So we were way before that.
0: Right, right. So then uh, TensorFlow is basically a kind of general framework for graphical models, right?
1: It's it's based on data flow graphs. It can be used for many, many things. Uh, of course, we've focused so far mostly on machine learning. But actually, um, even
0: I, I, I think that actually it uh, you guys, this is just me. I think you guys should just focus it on deep learning because uh, for machine learning, the uh, an ordinary data scientist has many simpler tools like, I don't know, scikit-learn or, or something else, right?
1: Totally. There are uh, many other tools and we're learning from that. So one of the things we're doing in, in this is for deep learning as well, not just other approaches. How do we simplify our APIs for a typical data scientist who doesn't necessarily care about all the details of how a model is built, but has, you know, once a, a set of algorithms say, within deep learning that he wants to use and apply them to his data in a, in a very nice and easy way, but doesn't necessarily need to know all the details. So, so we've built a higher-level library. In fact, it's going to be part of the current release and stuff. So that's there. In terms of other algorithms, one of the reasons for us to do that is, you know, if... People want to try out various things. And yes, we can be great at deep learning. But if we offer some more choices to users, and people today are using all kinds of things, right? It's not just about deep learning. So that just makes it easier for them to try various algorithms because it's just one library that they have to worry about.
0: Yeah, as long as, as long as the API is simple. So if I'm going to do, let's say I'm, all I want is <laughs> logistic regression, it should just be one line, right? Yes, yeah. that, that's definitely there. That's definitely a goal. Yeah. Yeah. So did you uh did you folks look at the other deep learning libraries out there?
1: Uh yes we did. You know, when to we see, were to see, so
0: to see uh what users liked about them and what uh, what you could improve on?
1: De- definitely. So uh when we started disbelief there weren't that many choices, so not at that, that time. But when we started TensorFlow, there was a number of things out there. Yeah, Torch, Theano, Cafe. And a number of others that were just starting out, and there was definitely things that we could learn from all of those. And you know, we've modeled certain things on Tiano. There are parts that we've learned from Cafe and Torch, and we've really tried to take all the things that we thought were very useful to our users and put them together. Plus, uh, you know, some other areas or are newer areas that others haven't really targeted well yet.
0: So, uh, my uh, my understanding of a deep learning tool. Uh, is that it should have two main parts, right? So one for optimization. So most of the time, that's stochastic gradient descent. Mm-hmm. And then another part that does the automatic differentiation really well. So uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that TensorFlow is built this way.
1: So TensorFlow definitely yeah. handles both of those cases really well. It does the automatic differentiation, which is very, very helpful for deep learning. And then for optimization, it has... All the standard optimizers like SGD or you know stochastic gradient descent with momentum or some variants of those. It also allows users to add their own optimization methods fairly easily. Pluggable, kind of way. Exactly. And in most cases, users don't even have to write any custom like C++ code or whatever, they can just use existing functionality within that to combine and build their own algorithms.
0: So you're now uh, a few years into this, and I imagine in the course of building TensorFlow, you've had to uh, do some uh, training internally to use internal Google users, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so what's your, what's your impression in terms of uh, the state of TensorFlow and just deep learning tools in general? Are they getting to the point where we're going to see kind of a much more democratized environment where uh, uh, not just experts can, can start really getting into deep learning?
1: Yeah, so we've been training users for a while now in terms of helping them pick up deep learning and apply it. Uh, way, uh,
0: Rajat, define users. So, what's the skill set of a user? Is it developer? Is it data scientist?
1: Right. So, so at Google, there are I would say there are the machine learning researchers who are sort of pushing machine learning research. Then there are data scientists who are, you know, as you would call data scientists externally, we don't have this term internally. We we really they're all engineers in some sense. You know, they're all software engineers in in some one form or another uh, who maybe are focusing or applying. This machine learning stuff to their problems, and then there, the you know we we have a mix of people. Some who are actually people applying this research to their problems. Like they they don't always have a machine learning background. Some of them do, but a large number of them don't. They're usually developers who are good at writing software. They know maybe a little bit of math, etc. So they can pick it up in some cases not that much at all but who can take these libraries if they there are examples there that we have you can start from those examples maybe ask a few questions on our you know internal boards and stuff and then sort of go from there in in some cases over you know earlier we've helped users by okay they have a new problem they want to some inputs on how to formulate that problem using deep learning and we might guide them or point them to here's an example of how you might approach this and so on but it, largely they've been able to really take that and and you know do things on their own so so internally we are definitely seeing it go to you know people who haven't never done machine learning before etc
0: so let's say i'm a, i'm a company and i'm not In the bay area i'm just a regular company you know enterprise i'm sure you've had this question asked before but i mean uh, what are some cases that are common that where i can use tensorflow or deep learning
1: so it's being you know what's not
0: you know i'm not google i don't have a lot of images i don't have a lot of speech files right 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 Right.
1: so uh vision is the one the people think the most about when they think of deep learning. That's definitely one thing that where deep learning is really excelled beyond most other things. Uh, and there you can definitely apply things, right? You can take our existing models retrain them on your data in terms of, so so let's say you just have thousand images, right, of, of a few types. Maybe you have certain kind of boxes in your warehouse and you just want to identify which box it is and you have five kinds of boxes. So you can actually use what's called transfer learning as well. that You can take our existing model, which we make available, uh, the best image model we have, and really just retrain a classifier on top using that same model that works really, really well for your thing. And we have examples to do this online, so, so you can really start starting, on your own. Start, vi-
0: starting from raw images?
1: E- yes, starting from raw images.
0: So what about text, right? So you're, start, you're yes. starting to hear about RNNs and LSTMs. There's a there's a researcher at Google, Oriol Vinyals, who, who's mm-hmm. given a lot of talks about uh, the application of uh, LSTMs to text. So do you think that's something that a regular company should start thinking about?
1: Uh, totally yes i i think this is regular companies or every company should be thinking about machine learning and, and you know even deep learning in in most areas that it's not just for vision and speech it's doing great for text as well so so some of the common things that people talk about right are things like recommendations things like sentiment analysis just text classification right we use it for things like translation but many many others any kind of text thing that you do to to analyze text and even maybe you know pick out text and all of that the machine learning and deep learning has been great for it.
0: so why not just use support vector machines or random forests
1: <laughs> so i i can come up with uh, there are, you know, there are places for it potentially you know the reason what deep learning buys you right is the fact that it can train from raw data And really learn what's what are the important features from Um, it. it, You mix those. Whereas a lot of these approaches require you to pick the features and then do things. Of course, if you don't have much data at all, then these are more interesting because your knowledge comes in handy in picking out the features. But if you have significant data and that significant keeps going down in some sense, that then deep learning is, is. really great and
0: does very well. So does TensorFlow ship with examples and documentation and ex- example pipelines from raw data for some of these common tasks, let's say for, for text? That's it, that's yes. It, does, will it guide me to from raw text, it'll do all of the parsing and get to the point of applying the algorithm?
1: So there are a number of examples and the tutorials there for different parts. We do have some for text as well. Uh, this is an area we continue to improve on, so we will continue to see more and more. Uh, you know, we would love to see many, many more. We we are seeing uh, in some cases examples being contributed by the community as well, so that which is
0: great. So, um, what are some of the interesting applications from outside Google of TensorFlow that you've seen since you've open sourced?
1: Yeah. Uh, Externally, we've seen a lot of researchers in educational institutions pick it up. We've also seen people who had no backgrounds in machine learning really taking this tool, seeing some of the papers, and being able to do pretty amazing things with it. So, for example, uh, there's this paper on deep Q networks from uh, DeepMind. And a number of people have taken that and applied that to build their own uh, games like pong and you know players that play pong and other games like that and just automatically you know using tensorflow learning end-to-end and training these systems and being able to play that that's pretty amazing
0: so is, so this uh, no does this involve reinforcement learning
1: uh this this one does yes
0: oh so that that comes with tensorflow
1: so we don't have Explicit support, or you know, built in for for reinforcement learning, but typically people uh, add some parts in Python itself, and then for the deep learning part that
0: goes with it, they use TensorFlow today. Oh, which, uh which brings me to my next question, which I hope uh, will include reinforcement learning as the answer. <laughs> um, so what should TensorFlow users expect over the next six months?
1: Yeah, so there are many areas for us to grow into. Uh, we are seeing an organization
0: of... hopefully is one of them
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes yes that that that's an ask that it, uh, can always be improved i guess Uh, We are definitely spending more cycles on that. We do want documentation to be better. We are investing a fair bit in making the libraries and the interfaces be easier to use. So more like you were saying, logistic regression should be one or two lines, not 100 lines, right? Things like that that make it really easy for end users, the data scientists to use this. Uh, We are also focusing on a lot lot more examples and models that people could start from. So if they don't necessarily know, they're not researchers who understand all of deep learning. If they have examples saying this is how you do, say, recommendations, they can still take that example and apply it to their data. So things like that are definitely there. Uh, From the core infrastructure perspective, performance is always there for us. We you know when we started out people were complaining about our performance we've gotten way better now we are comparable to other frameworks today but we want to get you know we don't want to stop here we really want to push the envelope up there and so we are uh, going to get continue to get better and continue to improve in those areas
0: in the early days uh, for example MXnet really was much faster than dentistry. yes
1: they, we were uh, leveraging so they, there are a number of reasons you know I can go on that but but we addressed all of those. And at this point, in pretty much most kind of models, we are, you know, on par in a lot of cases. So, so people compare, there's this benchmark uh, that a Torch developer actually has for convolutional lens. And if you look at that, in some cases, we are better. In some cases, we are nearly the same. So it, it's, you know, a lot of these frameworks today for GPUs, they are relying on an external library uh, from NVIDIA. And that, they you know, we've done a good job in making sure we don't have overheads on the right? Which, very, which wasn't the case when we started out. But there's a lot more that we can do from rather than just staying there. And, and we continue to improve there.
0: Uh, so, uh, uh, what is the state of TensorFlow for? for people who really want to get started. So by this, Rajad, I mean, how easy is it to install on a single machine and a cluster?
1: So single machine is is extremely easy. If you're a Python user, you just use pip install and point to our package and you get it installed. In most cases, it works pretty well. It works really well on Linux and MacBooks. It, we are working on making it work well on uh, Windows as well. We also have Docker images to make it really easy. The distributed one, Right now, needs a little bit more effort to install. You can still do the same kind of packages. We do provide Docker images, so that makes it a little easier. Uh, but today, you do have to do some work to integrate it with whatever your cluster management solution is. Uh, you could be using Kubernetes, Yarn, Mesos. You could integrate with all of those. We, you know, provide plugins really, or, or make it easy to do that.
0: So, so how does uh, how will TensorFlow fit into my big data stack, which might include? I don't know, Kafka, Spark, Hadoop, and whatever uh, in-memory storage engine uh, I have. So where where does TensorFlow fit in all of this? Does it it, uh, interoperate with any of these popular tools? So, yes,
1: there's definitely some work going on around that, mostly from the community today, but we are seeing how we can help there as well. The first thing would be how do you, run this and again goes back to the cluster management solution you're doing so if you're using yarn for managing your Spark cluster maybe you you know run tensorflow with yarn as well as a distributed thing uh you know one thing you might do which is common and, and there's an example from somebody at databricks as well is to integrate you know run tensorflow from within your Spark pipeline possibly to run many different instances in parallel for selecting hyperparameters, selecting your learning rate, or something like that, but you could really run this or, or spawn a TensorFlow job, or you know, call out to a TensorFlow job as part of your Spark pipeline. So that's probably the first integration point. In over time, we'll probably see more, um, and we would love to hear feedback on what people would like like to see. Of course, we won't be able to do every one of those, but we we also very open to uh, getting actual code from community, which the community has been great at you know, improving things. And these are areas that we would love for the community to get more involved with.
0: So in that Databricks example, I think what they did was you had a Spark cluster and you had uh, chunks of your data in each node and you would run TensorFlow on each node and basically uh, find the best parameter... Just- across all of these uh, instances.
1: Right. So that, that's a very simplistic example. That's one of the simplest ones. It, it's still useful. It's still very useful, but that's the first thing you can do. You can, th- there are more things you can do beyond that. So you could actually run a TensorFlow, a cluster of TensorFlow machines or workers within that Use on the same cluster management solution and sort of call out to that instead of just an individual job
0: too. Which actually uh, is a perfect segue for your most recent paper, which is on... Uh this notion of uh, what's better, synchronous or asynchronous, I guess, uh, stochastic gradient descent. And uh, you guys have had a change of heart, it seems like.
1: (laughs) So uh, we've done different kinds of things over time. When we started out back in 2011, everybody was using stochastic gradient descent, which is great, right? It's extremely efficient in what it does. But when you want to scale beyond 10, 20 machines, it makes it hard to scale. So, what do we do? So, at that time, there were a couple of other papers. Uh, one was this hogwild approach that people had done on a single yeah, machine. That, they they were and, done.
0: Ben Reck and
1: uh, Chris Ray. Exactly. And so that was very really interesting. We thought, can we actually scale it up? Can we make this work across the network, across many, many machines? And so that seemed like a fairly simple approach to try and we did some experiments and started tuning it and and it worked well. We were actually able to scale it to a a large number of workers, hundreds of workers in some cases, you know, across thousands of machines and and that worked pretty well. Over time, we always had this question, is the asynchronous nature actually helping or making things worse? And finally, like last year, we started to experiment and see things, what's happening, you know, do some more, try to understand what's happening. And as part of that, we realized if we could do synchronous well, it actually is better. And so we...
0: So do you have, uh, are you using parameter servers? So we
1: do, like logically we do. Uh, In fact, a disbelief we used to have the notion of a separate job called a parameter server. Except for TensorFlow, parameter server is just another worker. So you can do whatever you want on that worker, which is just much more flexible in, in that sense. But but yes, logically we do have this notion of a parameter
0: server. So then what, yeah. what what did you find out recently?
1: So with the asynchronous stuff, what would happen is we had these workers and they would work completely independently of each other. They would just update things on the parameter server when they had gradients. You know, they would send it back to the parameter server. It would update and then fetch the next set of parameters. So you're getting this noisy signal around where you are, and you're sort of moving and doing fairly uh, moving noisily, right?
0: You've gone hog wild.
1: Yeah, basically <laughs> yes, <laughs> excepted across many many machines.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, that worked reasonably well right from a systems perspective it's nice because it scales very very well it's okay if a few workers die that's fine all the others will continue to make progress now with the synchronous stuff what we want to do is we really want to send parameters out to all the workers have them compute the gradients send those back combine those together and then apply them now across many machines you can do this but the issue is if some of them start to slow down or fail, what happens then? And that's always a tricky thing with certain such synchronous stuff. And that's hard to scale. That's probably the biggest reason people hadn't pushed towards this earlier.
0: That's a coordination and- problem,
1: it is. So what we did was, you know, in a in a very small setting when we tried with a few workers, it seemed okay. And then as we scaled, of course, we started seeing some workers which were too slow or failing and all of that. So we started to, you know, take some tricks from the book that been applied elsewhere in different ways where in this case we basically have a few extra workers. So let's say you wanted a hundred workers, instead maybe create a hundred and five. And all you care about is getting results from 100 workers. You don't care about the last right. five. Just lose the deal. And that allows us to really scale it to 100, even 200 workers and not lose that performance and then gain from the fact that you have so many workers and they're earning synchronously.
0: You just made it sound so simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, coincidentally, actually, believe it or not, I was just in Chris Ray's office yesterday visiting him and he he mentioned that uh, we they have a new result which shows Hogwild has the right theoretical properties and works well for deep learning. So I will try to dig up that paper and uh, put a link to it on the blog post accompanying this interview. But uh,
1: Sounds great. We'd love to see that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So any advice to companies who are wanting to get started in TensorFlow or in deep learning in general? Before you answer that, channel your previous companies that are hipster Bay Area companies (laughs) from your previous life. So can you, how do you bring this kind of ideas and technologies inside an enterprise? Right.
1: Yeah, where deep learning is today, it's been, like you've said, or we've had, you know, during this talk, that it, it was for experts, and to some extent, it's not gotten to the common people, and that's sort of what we're trying to build, bring with TensorFlow to make it really easy for end users to do that. Are we there for everything? To some extent, there's there's still a lot more we can do from the company's so, so, so perspective.
0: Speak to uh, speak to the younger Rajat who wants to be a champion of this inside the company. How how would you go about doing that?
1: Yeah. So so one thing you know. For companies who are not using machine learning at all, I would say...
0: That's tough. That tough.
1: Yes, you you really need to change your ways, right? You want to move to the future, and there's not going to be too many areas left that you know run without machine learning, that you can program. The data is too much. There's just too much that humans can handle. You can't program everything. You really need to learn. So that's the one. Second, over the last few years, and this is something we've seen at Google, we've seen Hundreds of products move to deep learning and gain from that. In some cases, these are products that were actually applying machine learning that had been using traditional methods for a long time and had experts. For example, search, we've, uh, you know, we had hundreds of signals in there. And when we applied deep learning. That was last two years or so. So so th- this is big. And this is for all kinds of things, right? So so this is something that you definitely need to do and try, try out. For somebody who is not familiar with it, uh, my suggestion would be to try start from some example that is closest to your problem and then try to sort of start adapting it to your problem. Start simple. Don't go to very complex things. Uh, but there are many things you can do even with simple models.
0: So don't don't uh, don't think in terms of problems you don't have. Like, for example, if you actually don't need computer vision or speech recognition, find something in text. That's right. And... Uh, Based on, based on your description, I think that as TensorFlow improves uh, alongside with its documentation, I think uh, there will be a lot of people who are interested in text who might actually be uh, uh, surprised that they can use TensorFlow.
1: That, that's exactly right.
0: All right. So this has been great. Thank you, Rajat Monga. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, You can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.